Hi, welcome to JP Morgan TV. I'm Tom Solopek from Cross Asset Strategy. I'm joined by my colleague Saad Siddiqui, uh, EM strategist. Saad, welcome to the program. We're talking about EM fixed income and, and currencies. Now, you look at what the dollar's done in the last few months, bottoming out in, in let's say, mid-July, peaking in October, then hitting a bottom a few weeks ago, and then bouncing a bit. Meanwhile, on your side, you guys have upgraded EMFX to overweight. What's your take right now? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Tom. I think a bit of context uh, is worthwhile here. Um, if you think about what's been happening to EM currencies this year, so I'm not talking about the dollar broadly, but more against an, a narrower basket of emerging market currencies. You know, we've had, number one, a lot of differentiation taking place across regions, across countries. So for instance, year to date, Colombian peso has been the best performing currency. Total return year to date is about 35%. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, you've got say Turkish lira or Chilean peso, which have returned between zero to minus 10%. So you've had a lot of differentiation taking place. But the one factor which has been dominant across emerging market currencies has been carry. And that's whether you measure carry in real terms or nominal terms, it's generally been uh, the best performing factor this year, and it's been an underestimated factor in terms of its potency. Now, what's happened in terms of our own recommendations tactically over the last few months is we have been trying to harvest this carry in EM currencies. We have been long, especially in Latin American currencies for a lot of this year, but back towards the summer, you know, in July, August, we turned market weight and we took some risk off the table in these high yielding EM currencies because you had two shocks or two headwinds that we were facing. Number one was this rise in US Treasury yields, this notion of higher for longer didn't seem to be fully priced in. So we wanted to get out of the way of a potential further increase in treasury yields, which is subsequently what happened. Uh, there was also the rise in oil prices, which uh, was impacting especially Asian currencies, but more generally as well, it was seen to be an inflationary factor. And also for a lot of the energy importing countries, it was negative for their balance of payments. So we were basically on the sidelines for last uh, few months. Uh, but recently, we decided to get back in to our long position in these emerging market currencies on the view that you know the sell-off that we had in treasuries, at least in the near term, seems it seems that we got a circuit breaker with the Fed meeting and the, the QRA from kind of oversold levels. So that plus also emerging market central banks were clearly trying to lean against the wind of some of this currency depreciation. So they were either running down their FX reserves or pivoting towards a more cautious or hawkish monetary policy angle as well. So a combination of a circuit breaker and pullback in treasuries, plus the policy shifts and adaptations by emerging market central banks gave us confidence, plus obviously better valuations, better levels, gave us confidence to re-enter our long position in emerging market currencies. Yeah, you know, the return of the carry trade is certainly one of the most exciting thing, things that's happened in the last few years. And and uh, uh, I would say that when you look across the broad currencies universe, 
it, it seemed like we were kind of spoiled for choice when you're looking for things to get short in terms of things that may have worse carry differentials and more growth risk. Uh, but when you go on the other side, what is it you want to get long? It would seem like a much shorter list. So in, in your space, you know, when you think about where you'd like to be overweight, what are your favorite uh, currencies right now? So what we're looking for is currencies that have high carry in both real or nominal terms and external balances that are contained. So what you don't want to do is necessarily go into a high carry currency that's giving you high carry for a reason because it's compensating you for high risks of external risks or you know balance of payments pressures. So for us, that category and currencies in that camp are Mexican peso, which has a very good structural story and tailwinds behind it, also very credible central bank. You've got BRL. Uh, Brazil as well has been one of the beneficiaries of higher exports to China over the course of this year and still very high interest rates. Outside of Latin America, which I think still is probably going to provide bulk of, of the returns, uh, we've recently started to uh, communicate a more positive view on Turkey and the Turkish lira. You know, Turkey clearly has is, is in a slightly different category. It's more idiosyncratic. But again, it's a market that's been in some type of stress for a long period of time. And now I think we're turning the corner a bit um, with kind of policy adjustments that are seen to be more credible and still very high interest rates, you know, policy rate of 35%. Hungary also is a little bit um, in, a, in, in the category of high rates within the European region that we like. So it's mostly about currencies, high carry currencies uh, with contained or, you know, external balances or improving uh, st stories in Latin America and in EMEA. Asia, I think, is still probably the right place to be funding some of those uh, carry trades. Asia is going to be ha uh, held down by, you know, structural concerns over China, even though tactically we might, you know, we clearly see a little bit of a bounce. Um, but also interest rates in Asia are too low. If you look at the rate differentials versus the U.S., in real terms, standing close to uh, a decade low, for for example. Um, so Asia is probably one place where currency appreciation potential is still very limited. They don't have the carry. Um, don't we're not going to see central banks hiking rates there like we saw elsewhere in the world over the last couple of years. Um, and then you've got the drag, structural drags from China holding it down. So it's very much about a Latin America and emerging Europe against Asia theme regionally. Now, how about EM local bonds? You've been overweight for a long time and now you're market weight. What do you see as the opportunities on the long and short side right now? So in local bonds, I guess at earlier in the year, we were basically in for a big normalization trade. So after having seen historically outsized rate hiking cycles across many emerging markets, which by the way, had started almost a year before the Fed in terms of their own hiking cycles, this year has been the year of emerging markets beginning that journey of normalizing their policy rates. So we've seen rate cut cycles begin in Central and Eastern Europe, places like, like Hungary or Poland. We've seen them in Latin America, in Brazil, in, in, and in Chile, uh, for example. So we were, we were basically latching on to that theme 
of normalization of interest rates, and that would help, um, you know, uh, kind of this, the the bond trade, and you know whether you're receiving duration at kind of belly of the curve. Those types of uh, views uh, were for us a high conviction one. Uh, we again we had turned market weight on local bonds in in part because of what we thought were uh, headwinds coming from U.S. Treasuries, but also I think as far as the rate cutting theme is concerned, it's clear that we need to think about it in a much more nuanced and differentiated way rather than try you know painting all emerging markets with the same brush. So you have countries that are in different parts of their own monetary policy cycles. So Asia has been hiking interest rates over the course of the last few months. Um, so that's uh, you know in a, in a different phase, whereas the other countries that I mentioned in, in LATAM and EMEA have been cutting rates. What we've seen more recently in terms of the most recent developments is that some central banks, even amongst those countries that were cutting rates, have turned a little bit more cautious. So we had Poland, for example, people were expecting them to cut rates, they left them on hold. People were expecting a higher uh, uh, kind of cut from Chile, but they cut less than expected. Uh, so we've basically seen more hawkish surprises versus consensus, even amongst those countries that are cutting. So I think what central banks are communicating here is that they don't want to get too ahead of themselves if the Fed is staying higher for longer. So they want to hold back a little bit and not be, um, you know, kind of not showing any sense of flexibility around their cutting cycles. So Long story short for that is, I think there is a bit more uncertainty and volatility around the very near-term path of monetary policy for emerging market central banks. And that means we need to be very selective and careful and picking and choosing where we want to be in rates and in duration. Um, and then second, for longer end of the yield curve, you know, we've looked at valuations recently and on aggregate and on average, we're around fair value based on where fundamentals are right now. So fair value is not not bad, but it's not necessarily telling you that you want to be diving in to the asset class at fair value. You know, there's more variation at the country level. Um, uh, so the valuations, uh, again, aren't suggesting that there's a very compelling opportunity at the broad base level. It's more about picking and choosing on a bottom-up basis. Thanks, Saad. Now, uh, just turning to another subject that you've worked on, quant models for EM bonds. You know, it's a funny thing for our cross-asset three to five-year capital market assumptions. We had used something which I think is pretty similar to what you guys are using. We use this hierarchical Bayesian model. Uh, and, you know, what we were thinking while using this is, you know, this really kind of... Uh, solves a problem in terms of should you be focusing on kind of global common factors or local ones and 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 how the Bayesian part kind of finds the optimal mix of that. It sounds like you've gone down a, a similar path, similar approach for your quant model for uh, for EM bonds. Can, can you walk us through what you're doing there? Sure. And that's basically what I was hinting at when I was discussing uh, our uh, thoughts and uh, views on bond valuations right now. That's very much an output of this new approach that 
uh, my colleague um, Talis and EM Strategy has has taken the lead and, and that we've been working on uh, for some time on. And the basic story is as follows. Um, as far as emerging market local bond yields or swaps are concerned, you, you run into quite a few problems when you try to model them. One is you've got really variable volatility. You've got frequent regime shifts. You often have times of crisis and then times of euphoria, and they seem to rotate quite frequently in emerging markets. Uh, and you also don't have very long histories, you know, so we can model you know, treasuries. You can go back, you know, decades or even like a century when thinking about interest rates in the developed market. For emerging markets, we don't have the luxury of an abundance of data. We're dealing with a scarcity of data and, re and frequent regime shifts. And what that means in practice is that standard approaches to try to model emerging market um, uh, bonds end up uh, hitting the wall because uh, you it's very hard to map what's happening to bond yields in a consistent way to fundamentals because you have all this volatility, all this variation, all these regime shifts. So your models, your standard models will often come up with nonsensical or absurd type of results that really make no sense and that makes it hard to, to believe in them. So what we've done is we've gone with this Bayesian approach whereby we... Uh, try to find those common factors. So instead of trying to model each country individually, we first try to model them jointly, which helps to smooth out some of that noise and uh, smooth out some of those you know absurd results that you might get. So we uh, so we use uh, you know what's called a panel regression as a start, which is the prior in our uh, Bayesian framework. That gives us a starting point for what the sensitivity of any given country should be to say the fiscal balance or debt to GDP ratio. But we know that, but this model will tell us that every country has the same sensitivity to those fundamental variables, which we know is not true either. But we take that as a starting point and then using a, using a, a Bayesian updating methodology, we skew those um, those sensitivities, those coefficients based on the country's own uh, dynamics and, and, and its own um, sensitivities. So the end result is that we uh, get a model output that is consistent with our intuition, that's quite transparent, um, doesn't give those types of nonsensical uh, results, but also we're not throwing everything into a straight jacket either where we kind of force a result you know, we, we do have uh, quite a lot of country level uh, variation in terms of their sensitivities to underlying fundamental uh, inputs. Um, so that's, that's what our model does in a nutshell. And the results that it's telling us are that you have Asian bonds looking quite expensive. That's kind of what we expected anyway. Um, and then you have some of those markets that I described earlier Places like Colombia, for example, uh, or Poland, um, they're looking better valued uh, on this model output as it stands right now. Oh, that's great, Saad. I mean, you know, on, on our side, we were using it for more of a strategic application. So it's very interesting to see it working on the tactical side as well. And, it, and the Bayesian part really does solve a lot of problems in, in terms of finding that optimal mix. Um, now, let's look ahead a bit to 2024. I mean, there's so many factors to think about. There's 
end of the hiking cycle, peak in global yields, uh, high for long versus Goldilocks, growth risk, uh, flows. What, what are you thinking about for 2024 right now? Yeah, I think all of the above, uh, as, as, as you've laid it out and more. So, uh, look, I, I think we have, first of all, as far as monetary policy is concerned, Right now, a bit of uncertainty because of the tactical shifts and pivots by emerging market central banks that might give way to a resumption of a broader normalization cycle as inflation decelerates and normalizes across uh, emerging markets. So that's something to keep an eye out for. Um, you know, we have generally speaking growth decelerating over the course of next year as well. Um, uh, in, in many emerging markets. So that's something to uh, to take into account. There's a wild card of China. You know, So this year, if you can think about, it, we've had multiple regimes as far as the China growth regime is concerned. We had a lot of optimism about a reopening trade earlier in the year that gave way to a lot of pessimism um, because the reopening trade didn't deliver as expected. Then you had all the structural drags. And now it seems like we could go for another Short, may you know, some bout of optimism, maybe short-lived or not, uh, on China. That's another uh, important factor, especially for the commodity exporters, Latin American countries. Um, you know, a lot of the the investment rationale for these markets is uh, resting on demand, Chinese demand for commodities staying robust. And then finally, there's that other big um, wild card, which is politics. Not only, not only do we have the U.S. election in which trade policy, geopolitics, all of these things that impact emerging markets is going to be uh, front and center, but you also have uh, elections taking place in key emerging markets. You know, we have uh, elections uh, in Mexico taking place as well next year, which is going to be quite important from a Latin American standpoint. And then there's several elections taking place in Asia as well, not least starting with Taiwan in in January. So I think next year it could be a year where the geopolitics and geopolitical noise again is going to mix with um, these fundamental shifts to make for quite a, a volatile ride. Uh, I know that sounds a little bit of a cliche, but if you just think about what's been happening this year, we've traded so many different regimes in emerging markets. Uh, it's difficult to map even if we have a strong view of what's going to happen a year from now, it's difficult to map how one trades that tactically. Um, so I think we we need to kind of take it, you know, three to six months at a time here. Um, so for now, I think FX to me seems pretty well supported. So that's where we have a higher conviction. Local bonds a little bit more mixed, and I can see that going in different directions. Uh, and then of course there's sovereign credit as well, where we had. Um, a lot of kind of restructuring and default stories taking place over the course of the last, um, you know, year or uh, 18 months. And it's that high yielding space, the very high yielding space in uh, in sovereign credit, uh, which is idiosyncratic and also offers, I think, good opportunities that are not so correlated with what's happening on the global business cycle. Well, great. Thanks, Saad, for joining us. And thank you all for tuning in to JP Morgan TV.